Wow, thank you. Well, it's a sad evening to think about catching a very early flight out of Reno tomorrow morning and to think about seeing the greatest camp meeting on the planet in my rearview mirror as I leave tonight. That's depressing. Uh, Thank you, Uh, especially to the camp meeting committee. Uh, Many, many, many hours of work, I'm sure, go into all of this. And it has just been wonderful. So to everybody who had a part in putting it together, uh, my heartfelt thank you, truly. Greatest camp meeting ever. I just love it here. You got a good thing going around here in Nevada. (laughs) But we're in California, aren't we? All that work remembering Nevada, not Nevada. And we're in California. So anyway, but it really has been such a recharge to be here. So I'm very thankful. Uh, Well, my brothers didn't think that I could survive an hour of aerobics. I knew that they couldn't, so a friendly wager was on. We were on a cruise ship with nothing else to do when I ventured out onto the dance floor to mimic the moves of the dance instructor, but not to worry, this Adventist preacher was not dancing. I have no rhythm at all. I was just trying to stay with her because I knew my kid brothers were behind me. About an hour later, we met up over by the exercise bikes. I looked like I had just finished six marathons. They looked like they were heading to a banquet. So didn't you think that was hard? So what's that? The aerobics. Oh, you stayed with it? I said, you didn't? I thought you were right behind me. Oh, yeah, well, we started out there, but... We saw how stupid you looked and figured if we looked half that silly, we wanted nothing to do with it. I hear the only reason I stayed with it is because I thought they were right behind me. Come to find out, I was just exercising by myself. I've wondered since if perhaps in that story we don't have a parable of the church. We get really busy doing all kinds of good things, racing here, running there, doing all kinds of good spiritual exercises. But have you ever stopped and just wondered, are we exercising by ourselves or are we really making an impact in the world around us? When I received a call to pastor over at Walla Walla, I was at the time enrolled at a university working on my MBA in Seattle. After class one evening, a young lady approached me and said, I understand that you're moving to Walla Walla. I was a little surprised that she had heard of the place. Oh, yes, she explained. I used to live there. Really? Oh, yes. Well, I was curious. What was that like? She said, oh, it's a sleepy little town. I like it. Actually, she said, we lived in a suburb. Of Walla Walla. A suburb? I didn't know Walla Walla was big enough to have its own little suburb. And she said, yeah, it was a little town called College Place, which is, of course, where Walla Walla College was at. I said, really? Well, what was that like? Oh, well, we lived on this cul-de-sac of all Adventists. Really? What's that? Oh, Adventists, they're, um, well, I think it's like a church or something like that. 
Uh, I don't really know much about them. They're nice enough people, I guess. The only thing I know about them is they don't do garage sales on Saturday. Isn't that the weirdest thing? <laughs> said, yeah, that's pretty strange, all right. Then she asked me, so why are you moving there? Job transfer. Well, what kind of job do you do? Like that's any of her business. I said, well, I, um, I'm a pastor. Really? You're a pastor? I had no idea. I didn't know you were. I had no idea you were a pastor. You've always seemed so normal. That conversation has haunted me ever since. I've wondered, how is it someone can live on a cul-de-sac comprised only of Adventists and move away years later? And the only thing she knows about our church is that we don't do garage sales on Saturday. It makes me wonder, are we just sitting around talking to ourselves? Now, don't get me wrong. I love convocations like this where it's mostly Adventists who come together and we fellowship and we eat together and we study God's word. This is a rich experience indeed. But if this is all we do, then I'd say we're in trouble. The Apostle Paul wrestled with this question. Are we just talking to ourselves? If you have your Bible, you can find my text. First Corinthians chapter nine. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll just work our way through this passage, beginning in verse 19. Listen to the heart and the passion of the apostle here. As he writes, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Paul says, I do everything I know how to reach those who are far from God. To the Jews, I act like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I am like a Gentile. Do everything I know how to connect with people who are far from his kingdom. I remember when this passage first started bothering me to where I couldn't even sleep at night because it occurred to me that all of my significant friendships were with Seventh-day Adventists. I'm a fourth-generation Adventist preacher. I love Adventists. feel very comfortable around Adventists. But it occurred to me, I eat with Adventists. I hang out with Adventists. I work with Adventists. All of my friendships are with Adventists. So I started to make this a matter of prayer. God, if I were to reach people who are far from you, where do they even hang out? Where would I go? How would I begin? And then I had this spiritual epiphany. Oh, I know where all lost people hang out. The bowling alley. 
So I marched down to a local bowling alley and I signed up for a league called the Lousy Bowlers League. That sounded about like my speed. I wasn't there to bowl anyway. I was just there to make friends with lost people. And I don't mean this as a judgmental statement, but it sure seemed to me like everybody on my team, they were lost. I mean, they drank like lost people. They smoked like lost people. They cursed like lost people, mostly at me because I'm not much of a bowler. (laughs) They told these really off-color jokes that were very funny. And, and I'd feel so guilty because I'd be laughing, but then I'd feel guilty because they were so funny, but inappropriate for the pulpit. And it just seemed like such a waste. And it was just messy, messy, messy. And I'd get home usually about one o'clock in the morning, reeking of cigarette smoke and asking God, what am I doing? It's not like I'm making much of a difference there. Now, I wish that I could end this story like typical Adventist evangelists end stories like this. You know how the story should go if I was a real evangelist. And so I led everybody on my team to Christ and I baptized all of them in a portable baptistry that we set up there in the bowling alley. (laughs) And after I had converted all of them, then... I baptized all of the other teams and we transformed the bowling alley into this big mega church. And the last guy that I baptized was the manager of the bowling alley. And you know that man today as Larry Unterseer. (laughs) See, that's the way the story should go. Hi. (laughs) I just saw somebody come in in the back there. We're talking about you, boss. But good things. That's the way the story should go. Here's the truth. One pseudo-spiritual conversation in a year on that team. Guy was going through an ugly divorce. We started talking about it and I said, we have a divorce recovery small group that meets every Friday night at my church. I'd love to stop by your house, pick you up. I'd be happy to go to it with you. And then I asked him, you ever think that maybe God could help you through this mess you've gotten yourself into? And he said, yeah, actually, I've thought about that some. Maybe I would like to go to that small group. But then when Friday night came, he flaked and that was it. That was it. A year. I get it. Why, after a while, we just get tired. And so in many churches today, it just seems like the unwritten mission statement is let's just settle in and settle down and talk to ourselves. It's so much easier. But it's not what God has called us as a community of faith to be about. It was the heart of Christ. He came. Why? To seek and to save the lost. Paul says, I do everything I know how. Living Bible translation. When with the heathen, I agree with them as much as I can. Except, of course, that I must always do what is right as a Christian. And so by agreeing, I can win their confidence and help them too. 
I do everything I know how to win the heathen, to interest them in spiritual matters. Now, often we refer to Jesus as a friend of sinners. We even have that phrase in some of our hymns. Jesus, friend of sinners. And sometimes we think that we are venerating Jesus like this is some kind of a complimentary title. May I remind us that this was not a compliment at all. This was a very derogatory way to refer to somebody, a friend of sinners. What that meant is he hung out with some really unsavory people. Women who sold their bodies for sex. Tax collectors who cheated people, frauds, embezzlers. And Jesus was their friend. I think if you were to press the average Adventist in the average church these days. Do you want to be a friend of sinners? I think we all know the right answer, and I would hope we would all answer, yes, of course I do. But frankly, I'm not so sure that's really true. I think of one of my real good friends back east, went into the ministry and got assigned in a multi-staff situation. And after a few years, it just got untenable because, as he would describe it to me, we're just playing church. We're not really making impact in our community. We're not reaching people who are far from God. And so after much prayer, he they launched this seeker service on Saturday night that was designed especially for people who are not religious and don't do church. And of course, at first, everybody on the board was excited about this because after a few months, they had over 200 people, most of them unchristian, coming to this service on Saturday nights. Went for many months, even a couple of years, as I recall, until the whole thing blew up. People started griping because the deacons got tired of coming on Sunday mornings to sweep up the cigarette butts out of the parking lot. It was an inconvenience. They didn't want to do that. Then another gentleman complained that his son was exposed to really foul language in the bathroom there at the church by one of these heathens. And I can sympathize with the father Kids shouldn't hear that kind of language in a church. Of course not. It just gets messy, messy, messy. It all blew up at a board meeting when they were really divided whether or not to keep the seeker service going. It was a real inconvenience to a lot of people and they were arguing back and forth until finally one woman stood up and pointed her finger into my friend's nose and said, maybe you don't understand, young man, but this church was established only for the culturally elite. My friend stood up and said, I didn't understand that to be our mission here, but I don't want to waste my one and only life pursuing a mission like that. Left the ministry, left the Adventist church. They stopped the seeker service. 
attendance dwindled to about a third of what it had been in the regular Saturday morning services. A few months later, this same woman from the board meeting was overheard in the lobby of the church gloating, saying to one of her friends, Isn't it wonderful? We finally got our church back. Isn't it wonderful? The heathen aren't hanging around here any longer. And that church, so far as I know, is as inaccessible to seekers as it has ever been. And there are some in the church that are secretly glad about that. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Paul says, when with the heathen I do everything I know how, besides compromising my own spiritual principles, to win the heathen to Christ. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, and you would expect him to say, I might win all. Three times he said, all possible means. Become all things to all men so that I might save, not all, some. Some. It's hard work. Much easier to just enjoy our own company and talk to ourselves. Jesus, as you know, felt so impassioned about this very topic. One time, he hauled off and shared three stories back to back to back, rapid fire succession, all of them same plot, all of them basically the same story, all of them with the same punchline over and over. There was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, but he lost one. And that one sheep, it really mattered to the father. So he went seeking that sheep. And when he found it, there was this great celebration because that sheep mattered to the shepherd. And then he tells the same story, a different details. There was a woman who had ten coins, but she lost a coin. And that coin was important to her. So, of course, she started searching for the coin. And when she found it, it was a big party, a celebration, because that coin really mattered. There was a father who had two sons. One son ran off to the big city. But that son really mattered to the father. When the son returned home, the father accepted him back into the family and they killed the fatted calf. And there was a celebration where everybody in the village was invited because now the lost is found. That's how much you matter to the Father. Every child matters to God. Do you have any sense of that? I was sitting around the Columbus airport some years ago, practicing my primary spiritual gift of eavesdropping, <laughs> listening in on a conversation between a 
father and who I guessed to be about a four-year-old son. This kid was just mesmerized by the jets taxiing out on the tarmac, pointing at this one and then that. Whoa, Daddy, look at how big that one is. Oh, Daddy, look at that one there. Then the kid said, Daddy, when I grow up more than anything in the world, I want to grow up and I want to be an airplane driver. Can I be an airplane driver, please, Daddy, please? And the father said, sure, son, you can be a pilot if you want to. You're going to have to read a lot of books. Oh, I will, Daddy. I will. But that's what I want to do. There was a pause. And then the kid asked of his father, Daddy, when you was my age. What did you want to grow up to become? I love the dad's answer. In fact, I went scrambling into my luggage to find something to write it down so I wouldn't forget it. When the kid asked, Daddy, what did you want to grow up to become? Without any hesitation, the father replied, more than anything in the world, son, I wanted to grow up to be your daddy. That's the way your heavenly father feels about you and every one of his children. Every kid matters to the father. I love the story that Brennan Manning tells of the priest walking along a country road when he happens upon a peasant who is deep in prayer. The priest was so taken by the heartfelt rawness realness of this presence prayer that he couldn't help but just stop and listen for quite some time until at last the peasant concluded his conversation with God and noticed the priest standing there. The priest couldn't help but say, you must be very close to God. To which the peasant nodded and said, oh, yes, yes, God is very fond of me. Have any idea how fond God is of you? More than anything else, he just wants to be your Abba, your daddy. You matter to the Father. Every child matters to God. And so he came to this earth with the mission to seek and to save the lost. It is his heart. Paul then says, I do all of this, even though it's hard and you only win some. He says, I do all of this for the sake of of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. And there is no greater blessing than to be a part of God's redemptive story on this earth, to play a small role in the influencing of one who is far from God toward his kingdom. There's just no greater blessing than that. Then when we get intentional about reaching out to those who are lost, My first class when I enrolled in the MBA program at the university back in Seattle was a course in public speaking. I figured that would probably be the easiest class, and so I tried to tackle that one first. 
The assignment when we got in class that first evening was to turn to the person next to us, introduce ourselves so that we could then introduce that person to the rest of the class. And so I turned to the young lady next to me, a woman by the name of Lisa. She handed me her card. I noted that she worked at Boeing and that she had lots of initials after her name, CPA and so on. And she said, I've been in the MBA program now for about a year. I've been dreading this course because I hate public speaking. She told me what she did with Boeing. And then she asked, so what are you doing? I said, well, I'm a pastor. She said, well, then you got this public speaking thing down, I would guess. I said, well, if I can be of any help to you any time this quarter, I'd be happy to do that. Because, yeah, I I don't mind public speaking and I'd be happy to help you. Well, as it turned out, she didn't need any of my help at all. Her speeches were all brilliant. And try as as hard as I might, I couldn't coax better than a C out of that professor. Really ticked me off. Um, But, you know, I was happy for Lisa, kind of. Uh, But anyway, I digress. I'll work that out with my therapist later in anger management classes. But after class one evening, we were walking out to the parking lot and Lisa asked me, uh, now, you're a pastor. Is that right? Yeah. So she wondered, do you believe in God? You know, and I said, well, you're an accountant, right? Do you believe in numbers? Uh, I said, yeah, I I do. And she said, I I thought so. And she says, I'm I'm just kind of, I guess, spiritually curious. Can you tell me why you believe? I could hear my heart pounding faster and faster because I just had this sense that eternity is hanging in the balance. She's asking about the gospel. So I wanted to be clear and concise and compelling. And so best I could, I explained the gospel, how we are all lost sinners. But because God loves us so much, the only way that he could bridge the gap that sin created was to send his son, Jesus. And that's the only way that we can know with assurance that we will enjoy eternity with God. And when I finished this little gospel presentation, she said, well, that's interesting. So, well, listen, if you ever want to know more, you know how to call me or get a hold of me. Or if you ever want to come to church, love to have you come to church some week. So, well, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. We'll see. It's probably a year later. I was sitting up on the platform, gazing out on the congregation. And who should I see sitting in one of the pews but Lisa with her boyfriend, Jerry? Again, I just felt my heart pounding a lot faster. I was racing in my mind. What am I talking about? And how will this be interpreted by Jerry and Lisa? It was like I was preaching the whole sermon just for them. And I wanted to connect desperately. I couldn't wait to greet them in the lobby after the service. She came up to me and I gave her a big hug and said, Oh, so glad to see you here. And Jerry... Thanks for coming. And she said, yeah, um, you never told me your services were on Saturday. We came last Sunday. (laughs) Details, whatever. (laughs) 
And she said, well, the reason why I came is because, look, and she showed me her finger. And there was an engagement ring there on her finger. She says, we're getting married. Oh, congratulations. She said, well, you're the only clergy guy I know. Do you do weddings? I said, oh, I, yes, I'd love to perform or officiate at your wedding. And she said, well, that's what I was hoping. But there's a big problem with that that I didn't realize. Uh, our wedding is on Saturday. And so far as best I can tell, that's the only day you work. <laughs> it's not a bad job, I got to admit. I said, oh, I can get off a Saturday here and there. I'll be at your wedding. Saturday morning, I'll be there. Uh, such an honor. It's so good to see you. I said, come back again next week. She said, well, it wasn't as weird as I thought it was going to be, so who knows? Maybe we'll come back next, next Saturday. Well, that next Thursday, I pulled into the campus there that afternoon at the church and noticed that the lawn didn't get mowed as it usually did on Thursday morning. So I called the head deacon and said, hey, what gives here? And he said, well, the lawnmower's broke, and so I won't be able to get at it until Sunday. Now, normally that wouldn't have bothered me so much, except the only thing that I could think about is, well, wait a minute, what if Jerry and Lisa come? The grounds, they look terrible. The lawn needs to be mowed. I mean, what kind of a message does this give, that we don't really care about the church? We've got to mow the lawn. See, friends, when we really get intentional about reaching people who are far from God, we start doing church in a whole different way. Now, you can do evangelism by sending out mass mailings to a long telephone book of listings of names. You can do it that way. And faceless, nameless people come to the auditorium. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it's an altogether different ballgame. When you are trying to lead a friend to Christ. And so I just kind of blew up with the poor deacon. I said, no, 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 no. We can't, we can't mow the lawn Sunday. He says, well, it's five acres of grass. How are we going to mow it? And I said, he says, I can't get the riding mower fixed before Sunday. I said, I, we can't. We've got to mow the lawn. Get a pair of scissors. I'll help you. So we got some push mowers and we got it mowed and it looked good. And Jerry and Lisa came that Saturday. And I was so glad. And they came the next week and the next week. Came for probably over a year, as I recall. And by then we were really good friends and they were coming over to our house almost every Saturday night and just building a really good friendship with them. And they got married and I did their wedding and so on. And then Ken Cox came to our church along with Lonnie Meloshenko, Adventist evangelists. And they came and did a big satellite crusade from our church there. And I, of course, invited Jerry and Lisa and sat with them each night. And they were just eating it up. They hadn't heard some of this stuff before and they were enjoying the meetings. And so after a few nights, I went up and introduced Lisa to Lonnie Meloshenko. 
I don't know if most of you, I hope, know who Lonnie Melashenko is, but for years he was the voice of the voice of prophecy on the radio broadcast. And uh, if you know Lonnie, you know that he always looks perfect, right? I mean, he's a very savvy dresser and he's very good looking and he's hasn't lost one hair. <laughs> and the hair is always perfect. You know, he just, he and his wife, Jeannie, are well put together. They look good. Am I right? I mean, they're members of my church now in Kettering, and I work with Lonnie, and we're good buddies. And But back then, I didn't know Lonnie very well, and he was a little bit intimidating. So, anyway, I said to Lisa after one of the meetings, let's go up and I'll introduce you to Lonnie Melashenko. Because I had met him, but I didn't know him very well. And so Lisa said, yeah, that'd be fun. So we go up there, and I say, hey, Lonnie, I want you to meet a friend of mine. Uh, she's been coming to the meetings, Lisa, and this is her husband, Jerry. Uh, and the first thing Lisa says is, um, your perfect hair just really bugs me. Can I mess it up? <laughs> and I'm kind of positioned behind Lonnie saying to Lisa, no, no, ixnay on the air, hey, don't do that. And uh, Lonnie was a great sport, but that was kind of the way Lisa went, you know. She just said what she thought, and Lonnie was a good sport, and she loved just spiking that hair. And Man, I wish I would have had a picture. It'd still be on YouTube by now. Um, well, toward the end of the meetings, I went to visit Jerry and Lisa and said, Hey, have you guys ever thought about getting baptized? And both of them excitedly said together, we thought you would never ask. Yes. And I still remember, you know, now 20-some years of ministry, right at the top of my highlight reel for sure, would be that moment when I pulled Jerry and then Lisa up out of the water and everybody applauded and gave big hugs in the baptistry. And they're still very active in that church there. It's just such a blessing. Paul's right. I do this in order to experience the blessing of God. Because, friends, this one really, really matters. When I was in college, every summer I would call porter. That is, go door to door trying to sell books and Bibles and pay my tuition the next school year from uh, what I would earn by selling books and Bibles. Well, at the end of every summer, we would have a week of rest and relaxation, a little recreation at one of our summer camps. At the end of this particular summer, we went to Nasoka Pines in North Carolina. That evening, we played a lot of basketball until about midnight. When we left the gym, we were all sweating and hot and tired. And someone suggested, let's go swimming, a little midnight swim. That would feel good. And so we all went down to the beach, just splashing around, having a good time. Felt so refreshing until someone asked, have you seen Dave? Yeah, he was, he was here a few minutes ago. Did he go up to his cabin? I don't think so. We started scouring the camp, calling, waking everybody up. Have you seen Dave? Where's Dave Rose? Anybody seen Dave? Couldn't find him. Then someone back at the beach suggested, let's all lock arms. 
and let's dredge the bottom of the lake. Maybe he went under. And so I remember locking arms and walking out into the water. We'd come up for air and then we'd go back down. We'd go a little farther, come back up, go back down. A few feet farther, back up until finally somebody toward the end of the line shouted, I felt something, I felt something. A couple guys dove down and sure enough, they dredged his lifeless body up onto the sand. I started giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. My friend Mike started giving him uh, CPR, called the paramedics. It took him about a half an hour to get there. We had no spark, no sign of life at all. They whisked him away in the ambulance, and then we just prayed like I've never prayed before. God, please, please spare his life. About a half hour later, we received a phone call there at the camp from the hospital reporting that David was pronounced DOA, dead on arrival. And even though that's been 25 years or so, I remember it like yesterday, lying on the top bunk in that little cabin, staring at the ceiling. I don't think I slept at all that night. Haunted by a simple question, what if? No, I couldn't get it out of my mind. What if we had formed that chain a little earlier? What if we had found him five minutes sooner? That's a heavy thought to process for a college kid. For years, that has plagued me. And I haven't told that story very much, but I told it a few weeks ago this summer at the Montana camp meeting. I didn't share all of the details because uh, I really didn't know David Rose very well and so on. And after the service, there were a lot of people kind of lining up and I was talking to them. And I noticed one couple standing kind of over in the shadows. And I kept talking to the people who came up until after about 45 minutes, they had all left. And I went over to this couple and I said, well, I've noticed you are so patient here waiting. Uh, Thank you for your patience. And they said, well, we really wanted to ask you uh, that boy that you were referring to in your story. Was that by chance David Rose? And I said, yes. And they said, well, that was our son. Really? And of course, immediately I said, I hope I didn't in any way, um, you know, betray any confidences or tell the story in a way that would be offensive to you. Oh, no, no, no. The reason we waited to talk to you and were, were intent on talking to you The reason is because we just love the fact that you still remember him. That you're keeping his story alive. They said, you would do us a great favor if you'd just tell that story as often as you can. We're so honored that you remember David. He was such a good kid. And they said, if it puts your mind at ease, which it did and does, 
said, you probably didn't know, but uh, he had a rare condition, which I don't remember the name of it, but they said basically he died instantly, and the physicians all told us that he would have died had he been sleeping. The fact that he was swimming didn't make any difference at all. And so that was a relief to me because I know it wasn't necessarily a, an issue of finding him a little sooner. Um, but of course, you can understand the heart of these parents that just want to keep his memory alive. That's the way every parent feels toward their children, isn't it? It's the way God feels toward his children. So here's the deal. It is my prayer that we would leave this beautiful campground locked arm in arm, focused on one mission, to seek and save the lost. The reality is, friends, we live in a world that is just drowning in sin. And a lot of people are going to Christ-less graves. Eternity hangs in the balance. This one really matters. It matters to people who face an eternity without Jesus. It matters to parents who have prodigal children. Talk to any parent who has invested a lot of money in Christian education and tried their best to shape the spiritual life of their child and then to see that kid wander far from God and far from the church. Talk to that parent and ask, does it make any difference at all that where your kid lives in that neighborhood, there's an Adventist church that is so single-minded in its focus to reach your child, to engage them in the community of faith, to bring them to God? Does it matter to you at all? My hunch is most parents would say, yeah, it really matters. And it matters to a God who gave the best he had in the life of his son to reconcile a rebellious and lost human race to his father. As a pastor, I've spent a lot of time on things that don't matter this much. I remember three business meetings where we argued about what color to paint the walls, and there's nothing wrong with that. I really do think decor in a church is important. We spent many board meetings and business meetings trying to tweak the schedules when we're going to have first service and second service and so on. And that's always a tricky thing to do. Many, many hours invested in that conversation. And again, nothing wrong with doing that. It matters. But none of that matters as much as what we're talking about tonight. To lock our arms, to say as we leave this place, we're going to do everything we know how to lift up Christ and to draw all people to him. God, for our special week together here, I'm so grateful. But God, what a crime it would be as if this was just a cordial conversation among the like-minded. 
I pray, God, that you would stir something deep within us so that we can see people the way that you see people. And that you would burden our hearts with how much you love every child and how much each person matters to you. So, God, I pray that we would leave this place unified in spirit, focused in heart, intent on reaching people who are far from you and playing a part of your redemptive story. So I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.